Welcome to Claiming Your Confidence, the podcast. I'm Katrina Blowers, and as a journalist, speaker, and mentor, I know what it's like to have confidence. I also know what it's like to have to dig really deep and find it all over again. I've interviewed hundreds of high-profile people, and this is what I know for sure. We all suffer fear, imposter syndrome, and self-doubt, no matter how shiny our life appears to be. So let's reframe the confidence conversation together and uncover the hacks and secrets to get more of it. Claiming your confidence starts now. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 20. I can't believe I've even been saying those words. It's just passed by in a whirlwind. I've actually decided that this will be the final episode of season one, and then I'm going to take just a couple of weeks break. I'm already in recording for season two, and I have some amazing guests that I can't wait to share with you. But this episode, I thought I would do a solo episode, which is my very first one. So please bear with me. (laughs) It does feel super weird to be inside my pillow fort at my dining room table talking to myself. Um, But I've received so many beautiful messages from so many of you and they mean the world to me. It is just beyond amazing that this content is really connecting and resonating and helping so many of you. Um, I think, you know, that that quote by Brene Brown that inspired me to, to launch this platform, which is courage is contagious. I think that really rings true when you're hearing about other people's stories, especially people who have achieved some pretty major things in life. And you realize that they struggle with all the same stuff that the rest of us do and it's just that they have a slightly different way of thinking about it or tackling it or approaching it. Um, So it is just beautiful that um, so many of you have reached out and told me uh, different aspects of, of the podcast that have resonated with you. The biggest thing that um, you guys have asked me about is my panic attack. Uh, And again, I'm really humbled, all of you who have told me your personal panic attack stories. Um, Thank you very much for sharing. And and many of you have said that you've never told anyone else before. Um, For me, it was a really big deal to go public with that story. I kept it to myself for a number of years before I felt brave enough to to talk about it. And um, I ended up doing it in a pretty big way. It went into the newspapers. And then of course, the Daily Mail picked it up. And um, so it was kind of out for everyone to see. So I'm going to talk to you today about the five big things that I did to make a confidence comeback after my panic attack. Um, I'm also going to do a bit of a Q&A at the end because um, a lot of you have asked me questions about different things, so I would love to answer those at the end. So this is going to be a bit of a mixed bag of an episode. Well, as I said, the story of my panic attack absolutely took me the longest time to tell. There was so much shame, fear, and also worry about what other people would think of me. And that kind of kept me hiding it almost like a secret for several years. I wanted to specifically share with you the exact steps I took after that happened. 
And before we begin, I should point out that, of course, I am not a psychologist or a therapist. I'm merely offering this as an insight of what's worked for me, not necessarily as advice for others. These are things that have worked for me. I did not need to go on medication and that's not because I don't believe in it or see the value in it. It's simply because for whatever reason, I didn't need to. Um, So I'm offering these up as suggestions only and general advice. So five things I did. Number one, I normalized it with science. Now, the human brain, as I have discovered, is not designed to make you happy. Its job is to keep you alive. So for those of you who don't know the backstory to my panic attack, at the time, I was going through a divorce. So this is a bit over four years ago now. I was with my then husband for 20 years. So divorce is stressful, as I'm sure those of you who are listening who have ever been through a divorce know. No matter how amicable your breakup is, there's a lot of grief. It's the end of an era. For me, there was a lot of stress as to what I was doing to my children by um, being involved in breaking up that family unit. But in typical kind of Katrina style, of well, back then anyway, I was sweeping all of that under the carpet and trying to carry on business as usual because I did not like to deal with my stuff. <laughs> I... Um, I didn't really want to do the hard work that I knew deep down in my heart I would have to do to get through that. So I was carrying on business as normal, sweeping under the rug, going to my job as a television newsreader, um, seeing that as my happy place, as my safe place where I could put on a show, put on a facade and pretend like it was business as usual. And of course, stress has a way of manifesting in a way that you can't ignore. And for me, I was reading the news on a Sunday night. I was sitting up at the news desk about to do one hour of live television all by myself. I read the news solo on a Sunday night and we get a countdown, which is kind of like, because our news is automated, we have a director who's a human being and uh, an assistant director and also a human being rolling the auto cue. But all of the cues to the presenter and the cameras are all operated by kind of like robots. So we get like a Siri style voice countdown in our ear when we're about to go live. So that that starts at five and then goes down to one and then you're live on air. Normally I get butterflies anyway. And then they're kind of excited butterflies. But I suppose because my stress was at such a high level, um, it was like my cup was full and just that extra drop of stress just tipped me over and I ended up having a full-blown panic attack on air. Uh, I couldn't breathe. I could hardly talk. Um, I managed somehow to say good evening and then I read the very first line of the story and I knew that I had to get myself off camera to collect myself. So I read the very last line that was on the auto cue, skipping about four paragraphs in between. So that lead story made absolutely no sense. And then once I was off camera, my director said to me, what happened? Did you, did the auto cue fail? 
And I said, no, I'm pretty sure I've just had a panic attack. So they were beautiful and they helped me through the rest of the bulletin by breathing with me between every story. Um, It was a struggle, but I got through. But of course, after that, you then have anxiety about it happening again. And I knew that I either had to dig really deep and find a way to get through this because this knocked my confidence in a massive, massive way. I was then scared to even put myself out there on stage in the fear that it would happen again and I would look like an idiot in front of people. And public speaking is something that I do a lot of. So it was either walk away from all of that, which, you know, is a big love of mine, or find a way through. So the first thing that I did was I read all of the literature that I could because I'm a journalist. I love researching. And what I found was that, of course, human beings evolved as social creatures. We thrive because of our ability to cooperate and work together in groups. Now, for 99% of the 200,000 odd years that we've been on earth, we lived as nomadic hunter-gatherers. If a prehistoric person was rejected by the tribe, They would be exposed to the elements and the predators and they wouldn't survive for long. Because of this, we are hardwired to bond with the tribe. So our fear that people will reject us is a deep and primal one. And this is one reason why that for some people, including me, going on stage or giving a talk or getting behind the camera on the news desk or even getting into a confrontation with someone, can put you into that full-blown fight or flight mode. You're at risk of rejection. And because according to evolution, rejection is life or death, the stakes feel incredibly high. Your unconscious mind does not know the difference between what you're vividly imagining and what is in fact reality. There is a physiological and a psychological reaction going on between your mind and your body. So step one, normalizing it with science. That made me feel so much better because it made me feel that I wasn't having some extreme crazy reaction. It was just my brain trying to keep me safe and trying to do its job. Step number two of what got me through was meditation and breathing. Up until then, I had heard of meditation, didn't think I had time for it, thought, you know, maybe it was a bit of a waste of time, thought, no way can I sit still for long enough or, you know, sounds pretty boring actually, (laughs) trying to sit there and not think of anything. And I was so kind of desperate for a solution that I was looking at the Headspace app, which was on my phone, And there was an anxiety course on there, a 30-day challenge for getting through anxiety. These meditations were, I think, two to three minutes long. And I thought, you know what? I can do that. Worst thing that happens is I waste two minutes of my life. So every time before I went down to the studio, I would do these two-minute meditations. And what they they taught me was um, that you didn't need to eliminate fear. The goal wasn't to get rid of the fear entirely. The goal was to accept that the fear was there and to not emotionally attach to it so much. So meditation, I guess, gives you space between having the thought and telling yourself a story about that thought. So believing that thought to be true. 
I, again, did some research on the science and found that it dampens the activity in your amygdala, which is that lizard ancient part of your brain, and increases the connections between your amygdala and your prefrontal cortex. Now, both of these parts of the brain help us to be less reactive when we're really stressed out and also to recover better from stress when we experience it. And this rewiring of the brain actually um, creates more more folds in the, you know how the brain has lots of folds, it actually creates more folds and can change it for the better. Also breathing in the moment um, when you're feeling that panicky, panicky feeling, breathing through the nose, like if you're standing in front of a group of people giving a presentation or pitching to a client or whatever, Pausing and breathing through your your nose can actually activate that parasympathetic nervous system, which is what calms your body down. And there's a thing called box breathing, which I started to do, which is where you breathe in through the nose for four seconds, you hold it for four seconds, and then you breathe out through the mouth for four seconds, hold for four seconds, and you repeat that four times. So that's a good little hack to do as well. All right, step number three, I embraced self-love. Now, this is not about, you know, leaping through meadows and riding unicorns. What that meant for me is I just cut myself some slack and started to be kinder to myself. If beating up on yourself was an awesome way to change your behaviour, don't you think you'd be perfect by now already? (laughs) You are totally what you think and you need to choose your thoughts carefully. What I discovered was I was entering into a bit of a spiral where I was in that shame spiral about the panic attack and about the anxiety and thinking that I wasn't good enough, that maybe speaking in public or presenting wasn't my strength anymore. What's everyone going to think of me? Um, You know, all of that negative spirally stuff. And I was, by focusing on that constantly, I was conditioning my mind to think that it was true. So I really learned to pay attention to my thoughts and to cultivate the good ones and get rid of the the shame and the guilt. I I hadn't failed. I wasn't a disappointment. Um, It's that whole thing about how would you talk to your best friend or even your child? Um, and, and that whole thing of, uh, when I sat at the news desk at first, I was thinking, I can't be nervous. I shouldn't focus on my nerves, but you're actually, by doing that, you're giving energy and power to those words, nervous and nerves. It's like not thinking of the elephant in the room. If you pretend you're not scared, then you give it power over you. So what I did instead was I was like, okay, I'm feeling nervous. That's okay. I can actually handle that is this helpful to me right now? It's not really. So I'm actually going to think of something else instead, um, which leads me to point number four. I got really clear on my why and I made it much bigger than me. So what I did was when I was reading the news, I made it about something other than me sitting there looking like an idiot because I might have a panic attack or being judged by other people. I made it about, well, why is it that I really love reading the news? I love giving people information that could potentially enhance or improve their life. So 
even if it's bad information, you can then have choices to to um, make decisions about a course of action or be better informed about a particular topic. So I started focusing on that and my why and being the best kind of conveyor of information that I could be and really trying to connect and be warm with my audience. So if you're feeling crap about yourself, go outward rather than inward. Send someone a text who you haven't talked to for a while, paying them a compliment. Um, It can be reflexive for many of us, including me, to shrink away when we're feeling fearful or bad. Uh, I like to call it intentional confidence rather than unintentional confidence when you become really clear on what your intention is and what your why is and you make that bigger than your fear. Finally, number five, I learned to ride the waves. <laughs> you got to control your controllables and surrender sometimes when you feel the fear and just accept that not every day is going to be a great day. You're going to have days where it's like the, the old two steps forward, one step back. And when you do feel those icky feelings, you actually need to sit in them. You can't just push them under the carpet. Um, Otherwise, they are going to erupt when you least expect it. It's that beautiful um, saying that tough situations don't last, but tough people do. And getting back to the science, there is actually some science about this. According to a Harvard brain scientist, 90 seconds is actually all it takes to identify an emotion and allow it to dissipate while you simply notice it. So when you're stressed or if you're feeling scared about something or you've got stage fright or, you know, you're feeling awful after a confrontation with someone, just pausing for 90 seconds and labelling that emotion, labelling what you're feeling like I'm getting angry, I feel really nervous, I don't feel like I'm good enough, Um, that tamps down that activity in the amygdala. MRI studies of the brain show that this emotion labelling calms that brain region down and helps you regain control. So that's something that I do. I, I sit in my emotions, I give myself 90 seconds, no longer, um, and I create space for all of these habits. I get up early and I really work on this stuff because for me, this is my livelihood and it's important to me that I show up in the way that I want to show up so that I can keep doing the work that I really want to do. So to recap, I normalized it with science. The second step was meditation and breathing. The third step I took was I embraced self-love. Number four, I got clear on my why and I made it bigger than me. And number five, I learned to ride the waves and surrender when things didn't go so well. Let's get into the Q&A part of the episode. This is going to be fun. Thank you so much for sending all these questions through. There's some, there's some good ones here. Uh, Roman the Chef asked, if you had one other job, what would it be? All right, I'm about to share something I've never, ever shared before with anyone. 
My secret dream, and it has been ever since I was little, is to be a backup singer. <laughs> Whenever I go to concerts, I um, I always look at the backup singers and they look like they're having the best fun because the spotlight is not on them. No one's really looking at them except for me. And they always look like super sexy and they're always wearing like really nice outfits and they're dancing with the biggest smiles on their faces. I guess because the pressure is not really on them to like perform in a way, you know, like the critics aren't going to write about their performance or the audience isn't going to walk out like if they, you know, don't perform up to standards. So they just get to be in the moment and create amazing music, be part of this massive spectacle and just kind of enjoy the ride. Maybe there are some backup artists listening to me going, "Eh, no, actually, it's really tough. I'm sure it is. But to me, it looks like just so much fun and you get to really be in the moment. So yeah, who knows? I don't know that I'm the best singer, but I do love karaoke. But uh, yeah, I would love to be a backup singer. Uh, Kayla asked me, what is my favourite accomplishment this year in 2020? Um, You know, I'm going to say this podcast. I've been sitting on the idea of doing this for about two and a half years which is very unlike me because normally when I get an idea, I just go ahead and do it. But with this, because there's like tech involved and all these processes, which I had no idea about, I just kind of went, oh, this just looks like the too hard basket. And then as the years rolled on and like every man and his dog seemed to have a podcast, I just thought, oh, it's a saturated market. Um, what on earth do I have to add? So I actually feel really proud of myself that I just pulled my finger out, learned the tech, which PS is not that hard. Um, my microphone cost 120 bucks off Amazon. I got a really cheap pop filter. I record into my Mac laptop. Um, it's not difficult. If you're thinking of doing it, just bloody do it. And you'll be really glad you did. And the best part about it is while I know a lot of the people who I have interviewed for season one, there's quite a few like Samantha Wills who I have admired from afar and really just had no reason to talk to her until I hit her up to be on my show. And she is the most delightful woman and we have emailed quite a lot since then. So it's kind of like an excuse to reach out and have really deep and meaningful conversations with people who are on your wish list of people to get to know. Carlo, hello, Carlo. You've been such a beautiful supporter of mine and DM'd me so many times. So thank you for sending through this message. You have asked me, how hard was it to fall in love again after your divorce and how long did it take? (laughs) Oh my gosh, no one's ever asked me that before. Um, You know, honestly, it did not take me long. And I have thought of how to answer this because I want to be really respectful to my ex, um, who I still am, you know, in a great relationship with to this day. He's, we, we co-parent really well and I'm super grateful for that. 
But I think anyone who has been through the end of a relationship, especially when there are children involved, it's not as simple as, you know, when you're dating someone and you're just like, you know, like I'm just needing to end this and then you end it and it's done. Like unpicking a marriage and we'd been together for a long, long time with children, property, families, everything. It's it's really complicated. So you need to be 100% sure. Well, that's what I thought anyway. And the thing is, you never really are 100% sure, particularly, you know, we got along very well. There was nothing like from the outside looking in that was quote unquote wrong. But um, over, over quite a number of years, I... I guess I had a gut feeling that this wasn't right for me. And so over those years, I had started to, I guess, um, close down my heart emotionally in that romantic love sense. So that's why I think when we did part ways and moved out of the family home and all of that, it didn't take me a huge amount of time to be ready to um, dive in again, I suppose. I was lucky enough that the person that I'm with now was already a friend. So we'd already established a connection. Uh, So look, I hope that kind of gives you a bit of an answer. I didn't have to go on Tinder or anything. Um, (laughs) um, So yeah, I I was very fortunate that it happened. in that organic way. And I am very happy now. Uh, Lottie, hi Lottie, if you were to give one piece of advice to those who are suffering with mental health and or confidence issues as a result of everything that's happened this year globally, what would that be? Well, first of all, I would want to give you a big hug because this has been bloody tough. Um, life is tough enough, but this year has just added a whole extra layer of complexity to things that we have already been feeling. So I'd love to let you know that you're not alone and, um, you shouldn't feel any shame or guilt or beat up on yourself for feeling that way because a lot of us are struggling right now. And the other thing, um, this is what my auntie always says and so many other people say it too, but this too shall pass. It shall pass. Things will get better. Um, And it unfortunately does take some, some work. You need to get yourself some help if that's just reaching out and having a conversation. Um, Surround yourself with great people. And if there aren't people in your immediate circle who Um, uh, uh, positive and uplifting, you can surround yourself virtually with great people. So the podcasts that you listen to, the people that you follow on Instagram, the books that you read, all of those people can kind of sub in and become your new circle. Do you have any comments to share around the way in which women in particular work these days? I'm talking multitasking, taking on insane workloads, trying to further your career, raising children, taking on the mental load, juggling relationships, family, and trying to stay sane through it all. I would say for me, and thank you, Lottie, for for asking that question. This is something that I feel like on some days I deal with super, super well and on other days it just all comes crashing down. Um, For me, the big thing is to take time for myself every single day 
and I have to get up early in order to make that happen because once the once my kids are up and once the workday begins, my phone is just ringing hot all day and I've got emails coming at me um, and my kids need, they're still young enough that they need me to do things for them and I want to be present for them too. So I take time out, I get up at 5 or 5.30 and take time out every single day, a good sort of hour, hour and a half um, and that's non-negotiable. And that just makes me feel like no matter what happens for the rest of the day, I've at least carved out that space. And as Felicity Harley says, um, she was our guest, I think, on episode four or five. I can't remember now. Go back and listen to her. She's written this incredible book and it is all about that. And her mantra, which has now become my mantra too, is done is better than perfect. While I still like to put out good quality work into the world, for me, I don't sweat and stress over it being like absolutely perfect because let's face it, even if you think that it's perfect, someone else is going to find fault with it. So (laughs) you might as well just get it done and get it out there. Same with, I guess, the quality of my house and housework and the things that I choose to take on. And the other thing I would say is I've become mega, mega clear about my boundaries. So around how much I take on in a week, um, what I say yes to, uh, if something, because I used to say yes to like tons of speaking opportunities and especially um, charity events because, you know, I want to, I want to give back and I want to be available to do those things. But um, you can't say yes to everything. And I've now become really clear about what I say yes to and I use kind of my gut feeling as a barometer for that. So, you know, they say that if it's not a hell yes, then you should say no. So if something doesn't light me up and excite me, I set my boundaries. Um, Thank you so much for all of you for asking me those questions. Please don't be a stranger. I love to get your DMs. I love to see your screenshots of where you're listening and the bits in each episode that have resonated for you. As I mentioned, I am taking a couple of weeks break and relaunching season two with some incredible guests towards um, December sometime. I haven't come up with a final date yet, but thank you to all of you for listening and supporting me on this platform and for helping claim your confidence and other people claim their confidence together until next time which won't be too far away (laughs) I hope you're having a fantastic week thanks again Stay connected by following Claiming Your Confidence or me, Katrina Blowers, on Instagram. For more information on this or other episodes, head to katrinablowers.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review on Apple Podcasts or your favourite podcast app and make sure you share it with anyone you think would benefit from a confidence pick-me-up. Claiming Your Confidence is created and produced by me, Katrina Blowers. Audio thanks to Turner. Term 6 podcast productions. I hope you're having a great week. Thank you for listening to Claiming Your Confidence.